You're listening to the Regulatory Roundtable, a funds regulatory and compliance podcast brought to you by the global law firm Simpson Thatcher and ACA Group, a leading governance, risk, and compliance advisor. The Regulatory Roundtable offers insight from leading regulatory and enforcement lawyers and compliance specialists. We look forward to having you join us at the table. Welcome, everyone. Thanks very much for tuning into the Regulatory Roundtable podcast. I'm Megan Kelly, partner in Simpson Thatcher's Litigation Group in Washington, D.C. I have a particular focus in advising private fund sponsors with respect to SEC examinations, as well as disclosure and compliance questions. I'll be moderating a marketing-focused discussion today with my partners, David Blass and Owen Lysak. David is a partner in Simpson Thatcher's Funds Group in Washington, D.C., and head of the firm's Asset Management Regulatory Group. Owen is also a partner in the firm's Funds Group, but is based in London. Owen leads the firm's European Financial Services and Funds Regulatory Practice. The three of us are all members of the firm's Funds Regulatory and Investigations Group. It's great to have an international panel today as we want to talk about related developments in both the U.S. and EU, specifically new rules and guidance affecting private fund sponsors' marketing, which is a perennial hot topic, as our listeners know, and an area that tends to touch a nerve whenever there are changes. With the benefit of Owen joining, we want to focus on key takeaways in particular for sponsors operating in both the U.S. and the EU. David, let's start with you for the U.S. perspective. Can you get us up to speed with an overview of the SEC's overhaul of its marketing role? Thank you, Megan. Yeah, I'm happy to and uh, want to echo some of your sentiments. Uh, Wonderful to have Owen join us on this podcast. We are coming up upon a, a November 4th compliance date for the SEC rule. We've been focusing on that rule for months, uh, if not a couple of years now. And, you know, frankly, many of our listeners may be tiring of the SEC uh, hearing about the SEC marketing rule. And it's great to have Owen on to talk about the very important topic of the marketing uh, guidelines that ESMA has established and kind of to spice things up just a little bit uh, uh, from from our, our normal conversation just about the SEC rule. So as I mentioned, uh, the SEC's marketing rule comes into effect on November 4th. The SEC adopted a big bang approach with this marketing rule. It, as our listeners know, there were uh, decades of guidance, staff guidance, informal guidance, in addition to SEC rulemaking, establishing the standards that have existed to date for investment advisor marketing. All of that is out the window. It's replaced with an, a big new rule that establishes, uh, by rule, the terms and under registered investment advisors can market. I'll mention just some of the hot topics. I know we're going to get into these in some level of detail on this uh, podcast, but some of the topics that we're focusing on under this new rule are the new rule's impact on performance presentation, substantiation requirements. These are basically the requirement to be able to substantiate, meaning having books and records available where there are statements of facts in a registered investment advisor's marketing. And the new rule impacts people who endorse inve- uh, investment advisors, either as placement agents or through third-party endorsements. And we'll talk uh, at some detail about all of those topics uh, coming up. The rule establishes a, kind of a two-prong uh, definition of what is an advertisement. We won't spend too much time on that. The first prong of, of what is an advertisement is, is familiar to uh, most of our listeners. It's 
when an investment advisor has a communication that basically solicits a client or an investor in a private fund managed by the advisor. And that's uh, uh, going to feel familiar to uh, to, uh, to many listeners. It does carve out certain one-on-one uh, conversations, and it carves in performance information within a PPM, a private placement memorandum or offering document. So if uh, an advisor is uh, presenting its uh, track record or other performance information in a PPM, that would be in scope as an advertisement. One very important thing to to note uh, going into this discussion and, and relates to the overlap between the ESMA standards and the U.S. standards is the SEC's rule applies to SEC-registered investment advisors only. Non-U.S. Uh, investment advisors that uh, rely on an exemption, the private fund exemption, for example, and are not registered with the SEC, maybe they're exempt reporting advisors, ERAs, are not subject to the SEC's rule. And that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Those types of advisors, uh, their marketing from a U.S. perspective remains uh, subject to anti-fraud standards to the extent that there's marketing to U.S. persons and U.S. investors. But the, the, the rule we'll be talking about does not apply to those exempt reporting advisors. Similarly, we won't spend any time on this, the rule does not apply to certain types of advertisements, even by an investment advisor registered with the SEC. So an investment advisor that manages a REIT, for example, that's eligible for an exemption under the Investment Company Act of 1940, the 3C5C exemption, those marketings of that REIT are not subject to this SEC rule. The SEC marketing rule with respect to funds applies to funds that rely on the 3C1 or 3C7 exemption. That's the very commonly used exemptions. 3C7 is uh, as marketing targeted at qualified purchasers, 3C1 targeted at accredited investors. But if you're managing a REIT, generally speaking, your marketing for that REIT uh, would not be subject to the new SEC marketing rule. Anti-fraud standards, some guidelines for REITs would apply instead. There is some nuance to marketing, for example, new uh, private equity fund that refers to REITs that has an odd touch and requires some unique presentation of REIT performance. But for a REIT uh, or 3C5C or other 3C5 fund, the new rule does not apply. Uh, We'll get into uh, each of these hot topics, the performance, substantiation, placement agent agreements, uh, I hope, Megan, over the course of our discussion. That's a great overview from the U.S. side. Thanks, David. Let's shift focus to the European Union, and we'll be doing that throughout the course of the podcast so listeners can get comparisons from both regimes. So, Owen, can you give us a similar overview of the marketing changes uh, in the European Union? Sure, Megan, and thank you for having me on this podcast whilst I am in the U.S. And, David, it's interesting that you say kind of spice it up by turning to the EU. I mean, I I don't think I could get bored of hearing you talk about the SEC marketing rule at all. And also, I think the ESMA marketing guidelines is not a very exciting title, although we avoid these annoying kind of European acronyms that I'm sure people in the US really get bored with, AFMD, MIFID, all that sort of good stuff. But we do have these new ESMA marketing guidelines. And they're a new set of guidance on... I guess, the kind of content and the sort of presentation of marketing materials when you're talking to EU investors. 
And what do we mean by marketing materials? Well, really pretty much anything. So from teasers uh, through to presentations, term sheets, PPM, these are all sort of marketing materials that can be subject in some way to this new set of kind of EU guidance. I keep on kind of stressing, you know, the word guidance. And when you look at this, it's called the ESMA Marketing Guidelines. Don't see that as a kind of relaxed approach as to how these requirements are applied. When you think Europe, when you think kind of European regulation, guidance pretty much means rule these days. The way the EU regulators approach it they kind of call it guidelines, but they see this as, hey, we're telling you how to do this, so you should be taking it into account. The kind of ESMA marketing guidelines, they have been attracting a lot of interest in Europe. And I would say that is because historically, especially when you draw a contrast with the US, you know, historically, the EU had been fairly relaxed when it came to the content of marketing materials definitely relaxed if we were talking about, say, you know, interacting with institutional LPs. And I remember when I was a kind of younger lawyer, you know, the running joke when you reviewed marketing materials from a European perspective was it was all pretty much high level and you could pretty much rely on your US colleagues to do all the work for you. Because when you sent a marketing deck for example, to a US team, you know, you'd get a really heavy review taking into account the SEC rules. And that pretty much ticked the box for anything you would ever need from a European perspective. You know, in, in Europe, didn't have prescriptive guidelines at all. We just had a very overarching standard, which we call fair, clear and not misleading. But actually, no real detail on what was meant by fair, clear and not misleading at all. And what you're actually seeing under these ESMA marketing guidelines is a, is a real kind of cultural or, or sort of philosophical shift in how Europe is approaching this. You know, suddenly these, these guidelines feel much more US, if I can put it like that, in terms of what you have to worry about when you have some kind of content of materials going to EU investors. I think finally, Megan, to just mention kind of, you know, reflecting kind of David's points about when do you care about this stuff? So SEC rule, obviously coming up in November, these ESMA marketing guidelines actually in play now. So they came into force in February. So this is kind of live in the European market. And I think, Megan, you were saying also at the start about, you know, kind of operating in the EU and, and David was talking about the application of the marketing rule. When you look at the ESMA marketing guidelines, they apply to anyone who is doing kind of, you know, proactive marketing into Europe. So if you're a US sponsor, for example, who might be registering in, say, just one EU country to do marketing, these ESMA marketing guidelines are going to apply. So reverse solicitation, you know, if you're just kind of talking to EU investors ad hoc and they reach out to you, these guidelines aren't in play, but any proactive marketing into the EU, then these guidelines do apply to your marketing materials. That's a very good point to keep in mind. Thank you for that, Owen. I think with that backdrop, let's dive into some of the details around performance. Uh, David, let's start with you. What are the main issues you find fund sponsors are focusing on with respect to the various performance topics in the new SEC marketing rule? Yeah, thank you, Megan. And I guess I should step back just a, a, a bit and say, under the new SEC's rule, 
The general approach is as uh, Owen described, which is a principles-based approach. So the SEC re- uh, uh, lays out requirements that marketing be fair and balanced and uh, generally not misleading, which is not a, not a foreign concept uh, at all under this new rule. But the SEC is prescriptive in some places. And as you point out, Megan, performance presentation is definitely one of those places. The new rule, and I think, Owen, oh, one of the interesting things will be how this plays out in a cross-border way if, uh, if sponsors are going to have like one marketing deck that works for both regimes. You'll be seeing this performance presentation issue. One of the rules requires presentation uh, whenever its gross performance is presented to be accompanied by net performance for portfolios. Now, what does that mean if you show up uh, your track record, for example, as a fund sponsor and you show your maybe the, the five flagship funds you've been managing and their gross performance going forward, you must show net performance next to the gross number. Um, that's a, a change in standards for us in, in the U.S. under the SEC rule. Some sponsors did that already, but many did not. There are some unique issues that come from this net pr- uh, performance requirement. One is, what if you're not showing a fund-level uh, return? So if you're at a fund-level, uh, it's pretty easy to uh, to understand what the gross performance is, what the net performance is, and present that. But what if you're uh, doing an extracted uh, performance. So you have a new strategy, for example, you're looking to, to uh, manage and you want to show the investments you've made across funds using this new strategy and present it as though it's a, it's a portfolio. Well, that's an extracted performance and the SEC's rule would define that as those returns, those gross returns for that extracted performance as a hypothetical portfolio with hypothetical returns. Well, now you need, if you're showing gross returns, you must show net returns. And if there's a hypothetical portfolio showing hypothetical returns, uh, which would be the case with this extracted per, uh, performance, you have to find a way to generate you know, an es- estimation of expenses and fees that would give you a net number. And the SEC laid out a fairly complicated way to think about the, uh, presenting the net number. You would look at the highest fees paid by one of the funds for the portfolio that you're you're extracting from, you could use that fee and expense ratio and present it, uh, but it has to be the highest from those funds. Or you could look at the fee you're charging, you're proposing to charge the fund you're marketing and use that fee and that expense ratio uh, to generate a, um, a net number. There's some loose language in the SEC's release accompanying the rule that suggests you need to look at the higher of those two numbers. It's too early to tell right now, even though we're only a couple of months away from the compliance date, how many firms are going to handle that that language that suggests higher of. The rule, though, is clear that you use either or the rule text itself. So many shops may determine that because the rule is very clear, it's either or, we're going to use uh, one or the other approach. Um, and oftentimes that's for operational reasons. It's just very complex creating these comparisons of uh, fee models when none of them are actually the fees that were charged to any particular investor. Another interesting issue in the presentation of gross and net is what is the methodology used to prepare gross and net? Now, for many investment advisors, this isn't an issue. If you're a separately managed account advisor, a hedge fund manager, I think there's not a difference in methodology for calculating gross versus net. 
But for many closed-end fund, uh, private equity-oriented credit-type uh, strategies, gross and net are calculated in, in complementary ways that facially could be viewed as different methodologies. Gross looks at fund-level performance, generally doesn't uh, reflect leverage in the returns, whereas net calculations looks at more investor-based returns, investor-based experiences, which makes a lot of sense. They look at cash flows at the investor level, and those net numbers historically have reflected leverage. Now, the SEC's rule is to provide a comparable, use a comparable methodology for presenting gross and net, given the longstanding practice within private equity and, and, and related strategies my expectation is that the SEC will accept that the gross and net methodologies are, as I described, complementary and do provide for comparability, especially across fund sponsors, and will continue to see those practices of gross and net uh, as I've described them. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting interpretive issue for us uh, re- regulatory-focused uh, attorneys. There's another interpretive issue that's caused garnered a, a good deal of uh, uh, attention from many of us, which is the general rule for the SEC uh, under the SEC's rule, as I described earlier, is whenever you're showing gross performance for a portfolio, you must show net performance for a portfolio. Some have read the SEC's statements to indicate a need to show net performance next to individual portfolio investments. So this would be if you do a case study or if you show uh, the returns of a group uh, of related investments that are not the entire portfolio, but a a subset of the portfolio of a fund or an investment advisor's track record. Or maybe you show every single investment in a fund that a fund had invested in. Some have suggested that the rule requires net next to each of those individual investments, we read the rule differently. We believe the rule requires net presentation for any presentation of a portfolio, which would not include individual portfolio components. But the rule, frankly, is a little ambiguous. I get comfortable uh, with our our read of the rule in particular because from a policy perspective, it really doesn't make any sense to show that net number next to an, uh, an individual investment, partly because Investors are looking to invest in funds, not uh, purchase individual investments, but also because that number can be really difficult to make accurate. And my sense is that the SEC would not impose a rule that requires an inaccurate presentation of performance, higher and potentially lower. The, the, The way that the net number works for individual portfolios, there's a risk that it could be overstated performance or understated performance either way. And really doesn't make logical sense for the SEC to require that that kind of a presentation doesn't satisfy its policy goals of providing accurate, fair and balanced information to fund investors. Megan, I'll pause there to see if there are any other questions. That makes sense. If taking the other view on the issue you just described, would that also impose a great burden on sponsors to try to put those numbers together at that level? Or is it more just it wouldn't be a logical presentation of the performance? Well, it's a, it's a little bit of both, and I think the greater concern is that there's a, a logical disconnect uh, by showing that net uh, number next to individual portfolio investments because it's just not any investor's experience, at least if they're uh, potential fund investors. Operationally, 
you know, we spend a lot of time. I, I should have mentioned performance presentation has occupied probably 70 to 80% of the time, effort, blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into preparing for this rule by November 4th. There is an operational burden to showing the net number next to individual components as well as next to funds. There's no ambiguity. You have to show it next to a funds returns if you show gross. So there's no ambiguity there. But showing it next to individual portfolio components, either you put a lot of effort into tracking expenses and fees for each individual investment, which is an enormous undertaking, very burdensome, not something many managers like have built their systems around today. Or you take a very simplistic approach and have a just a ratio or some form of a shorthand estimation of fees for that individual portfolio investment. And, you know, both have their downsides. Like one is potentially a little bit simplistic. The other may not be possible for all I know. And if, if it is possible, certainly a, a very, very heavy lift trying to, to generate that kind of information. And, and again, I come back to the policy rationale. You know, the, the SEC would not want something that's inherently inaccurate, I, I would hope, uh, inherently inaccurate in marketing materials. So I, I don't feel like they, they must not have either thought about it in the context uh, that I'm describing or would they want it in this context. Now, again, some some types of funds, some types of investments, SMAs, others, may lend themselves to a simpler approach. It may be that you have this information and it's a simpler lift and a more accurate lift to show you know, the returns for a particular investment in an open-end strategy, a high, you know, a, an active trading strategy, theoretically possible. I don't know. I'm really coming at this more from a closed-end fund, private equity or credit or real estate strategy where that, that information really, really doesn't make a lot of sense to show. And so what about a related but separate issue about aggregated performance across all funds or, or many funds? So yeah, this is a very good question, Megan, and one that, that's caused, caused a lot of uh, brain cells to be uh, uh, used up. Um, so the issue is like, well, I'm a fund sponsor. I've been around for 20, 30, 50 years. I want to show my overall track record. So I want to show one number that shows all of my performance. Now, one issue there are the older funds, the, the performance that's aged a bit. Is it really relevant to an investor? So you need to think about that. Is it related truly to the performance uh, of the fund that's being marketed? And that, that's one issue, and that, that's an old issue. That's not new under this rule. The question becomes, is that uh, presentation of aggregated performance of all of the funds we've managed, is that hypothetical, meaning you have to use a model fee, or is that real performance that could be shown using the calculations of actual gross and net performance of those funds? And I think Certainly, people can think about that differently. I think the better view is if you're aggregating across actual performance, you probably do have investors that actually experienced that performance. And one of the standards that the SEC established for what is hypothetical performance is that no investor could have reasonably uh, experienced that performance. Well, here, if you're aggregated, you reasonably could expect some investors to have been in, uh, especially over over like two or three you know three decades, something that's not excessively lengthy. And you could think of that as real returns, which both reduces operational headaches because you don't have to go through this model calculation and benefits from showing probably a more accurate, well, definitely a more accurate 
representation of prior performance than would otherwise be shown. Good. And maybe just one more topic on performance from the U.S. side. What about disclosure of performance returns when you have the same fund family but different vehicles? So this is another interesting question. We, we, could, we could spend a lot of time on performance as, as we have uh, over the last several months. There are a couple of questions here. One, could we show performance over a, of a subset of investments that are experienced within one fund or within one fund, let's call it a fund family, like a, um, a, a consistent strategy managed by the same sponsor? And if we, if we show those extracted returns, do we need to use a model to, to generate a net number? Or can we uh, use the historical experience of that fund? And we think, especially with extracted from one fund, we think that that's not a hypothetical performance because you would have had investors experience that subset investment. And we think the same would, would apply uh, across a subset, across one fund family. And so the rule is not clear whatsoever but as we as we think about the policy behind it and whether uh, the SEC's expectation should be that uh, a subset within a fund or a subset from a fund family, that that should be uh, uh, return should be generated using the expected returns from the funds that those subsets came from. It's different if you're crossing strategies, crossing groups, different portfolio management teams, but within one kind of uh, siloed uh, uh, strategy or portfolio management team. We think that that makes the most sense uh, reading the SEC's rule. Great. Oh, and let's turn to you for a European perspective on performance presentation. How does ESMA, you know, with respect to performance presentation, compare to the SEC's regime in, in your view? It's an interesting one because listening to David, it's um, sounding like it's much more prescriptive or going to be much more prescriptive under the SEC rule compared to what we're seeing under the ESMA rule. But as we'll probably come on to a little bit later, I think that is the only area where ESMA ends up kind of less prescriptive, interestingly enough. So when you look at the ESMA um, sort of marketing guidelines, certainly sort of guidance in there when it comes to the presentation of performance information, but it is different and potentially not as restrictive. So, you know, listening to David's excellent overview, kind of pulling out a few things there, you know, under the ESMA rules, we don't really have the same concern around, say, equal performance of net IRR. That that really just isn't picked up on, on at all from an ESMA perspective. You do have some slightly odd, definitely odd, I choose my words carefully, odd, bits of the ESMA guidelines when it comes to performance information. I mean, one that we've certainly been scratching our heads on and trying to help sponsors with is the requirements around performance information, so previous performance of information having to be for full 12-month periods. Still not completely clear to us why that is the case. It, it seems to be a concept that's been borrowed from kind of European kind of retail, um, like a mutual funds type world but it does give you a bit of a headache when you are looking at information say you know past performance for a a deck or, or a ppm you know something as simple as just doing performance on vintage funds actually being able to say that performance sort of put out there each of those is like a full 12-month period and we've seen sponsors actually having to recut 
the numbers to make that work. So that certainly has been a bit of a a bit of an odd one. The more kind of general stuff, which I think is yeah pr- pretty unsurprising. So you know, no cherry picking performance of all similar kind of predecessor strategies is going to have to be included. I think you know, listening to David, the one the one thing where I think Esma under the guidelines really isn't as stressed. And again, use my words wisely. Yeah, like not as stressed is when it comes to things like extracted performance or what in European speak we tend to call some sort of synthetic performance. I think when you look at the sort of ESMA guidelines, there's definitely ways you can do extracted performance. So we've certainly come across examples where if you're wanting to, say, disclose performance of the subset of a portfolio, there is kind of overarching guidance saying you can't use non-pertinent information when you're kind of setting out synthetic or sort of extracted performance. But if you've genuinely done those investments and it, it's genuinely the same team um, and it just happened to be a subsector within the strategy, I don't think you're going to have any problem under the ESMA guidelines actually presenting that information. I think that touches upon a number of points David was making around you know, extracted returns, extracted performance, aggregated performance. I, I, I think the ESMA guidelines may end up, you know, quite relaxed on those points. Oh, and I'll jump in and, and just point out, you know, this is an area where convergence is likely to occur, uh, where the EU regulations end up getting pushed out. And it sounds like we're going to have an issue on, on, on the US side, thinking through global marketing decks with this 12-month um, exactly. uh, performance period standard. Which, which doesn't sit well within the SEC's regime, to be honest. Yeah, completely agree, David. I think one of the things that I'm sure listeners will take away from all of this is not quite that you get explicit conflict between the two regimes, but there's going to be push and pulls around market practice and expectations that, as you say, when, you, when you're trying to hit a kind of global, you know, single global marketing deck, there's going to be a fair amount of recutting, I think, to kind of tick the box of both regimes. Yeah, and, and just to confuse things further, we, uh, and as a reminder to our listeners, we have not just the SEC's marketing rule, uh, but also FINRA uh, uh, rules that apply to uh, broker-dealers, placement agents that, uh, that market funds on, on an advisor's behalf. So very complex set of uh, requirements. We do understand that FINRA uh, is interested in harmonizing its marketing rules and its advertising rules for broker-dealers with the investment advisor rule. But in my experience, that's a, that's a lengthy undertaking, and should, we shouldn't expect any, uh, any changes in, in that respect. Certainly not in 2022, and I would take the over on 2023. Oh, and just one thing. Is there anything in the ESMA guidance for presentation of gross and net? You know, on the SEC side, you have the requirement to present uh, the same type of methodology, same time period, essentially consistent methodology anything there with esma no so so nothing explicit and and that's not to say that we don't care you know i think when you look at it from an overarching fair clear and not misleading that that standard that probably as lawyers we always kick back to um to, to kind of push for certain changes i think you'd certainly want to see net as well as gross but nothing like the kind of side-by-side prominence that the, the kind of sec rule seems to be pushing for Great. So just sticking with you, Owen, putting performance aside, anything else under the ESMA guidelines that have attracted the most attention so far? 
Yes. And in some ways, way more surprising than I thought it was going to be. And maybe I was being sort of too innocent when I was stepping into calls with IR folks to, um, you know, discuss their latest drafts of marketing decks. There have been things that have been way more controversial and, and even emotional than I thought they might be. So th there's definitely two sections of the ESMA guidelines that have really stood out for people. One is back to fair, clear and not misleading, but actually getting some guidance on what the European regulators think is meant by fair, clear and not misleading. Like we, we'd never really had that before. There was kind of some, you know, historic guidance out of the UK regulator, but you know, hey, it's post-Brexit, so EU doesn't care about that anymore. Now we're actually getting some detailed guidance around this. And the other is a, a slightly new concept, which is called risks and rewards, which I'll, I'll sort of come back to in a moment. But maybe to just start staying on fair, clear and not misleading, just give a couple of examples of, of, of where the tensions have come in when we've been reviewing marketing materials. So, so one part of the guidelines is talking about you, you can no longer use what is referred to as over-optimistic language. So you can't say you're the best fund or you, know, you can't say you're the best manager or you have the best management team. Any, anything that looks like it's kind of diminishing the risks of investments, you can't say, well, this is a safe investment or there's going to be effortless returns or anything like that. You can't use the word unique anymore now there's gonna be lots of people listening who will say we never use the word unique it's you know we cut it out of marketing decks years ago i cannot tell you the amount of conversations i've had with major sponsors saying we never use the word unique and then you would get a marketing deck that's got five or six references to unique and things like you know we get we get access to unique deals and you talk to people about the deals and it was actually an auction process and there was five other sponsors going for it you know it's it's been this sort of thing that kind of really trying to, to mark it up has been, you know, quite a painful first conversation. To be fair, I think when you go through that first markup with a compliance team, legal team, you know, IR folks, certainly it gets better the next time around. But it has been, you know, tricky when we're doing these first markups, actually really, really challenging some of these phrases. And I think it's been the more nuanced ones, which are, you know, really hard. I think a firm favorite among sponsors these days is terms like we're going to future-proof companies. That is tough now under the guideline. What do we actually mean by future-proof? Is that something ESG-related, which some people might take it as? Is that protecting the portfolio company, say, um, you know, against changes technology-related, you know, changes in its sector, whatever it might be? So actually trying to build out those sorts of concepts and define them in a deck, I think has been sort of quite challenging for people. And so we do a lot of work now going through decks or BPMs, making wording kind of more opinion-based. We think we're the best management team for this reason, or, you know, we think we get the best investment opportunities for these reasons. And, it, and it's a lot of work to try and pull those sort of things out. The other area is, is this kind of new concept of risks and rewards where the guidelines talk about having equally prominent disclosure of risks and rewards. And then we had this headache. It's a real headache that you often see under kind of European guidance is that they'll have a very bland sentence of what the requirement is. 
And then a horrible single example that really just leaves you more confused than you were before you started reading. And so it's this requirement, equally prominent disclosure of risks and rewards. And then we were given an example of compliance being essentially a two-column table setting out the risks in one column and the rewards in the other. And we were kind of left looking at that saying, well, you can't really mean that we're copying out the risk section over and over again from a PPM. And what exactly is a reward for these purposes? It would be bizarre. If a reward is just the return on investment, then a single bullet in the rewards column and then a very lengthy kind of risk disclosure is just, just going to look very strange. As to where the market's kind of landing on this, I'll give you an example that I thought was very neat um, from a very major sponsor in the credit space who was going through a marketing deck, you know, let's say it's like 20 or 30 slides, and they kind of pulled out every slide which they considered to be a reward. And they were really treating that as any slide that was talking about why invest with that sponsor. Because that was clearly the reward. You know, the reward is the benefit, the extra return that you're going to get from investing with that sponsor. And, you know, so one slide was talking about why invest in credit generally. That wasn't treated as a reward slide. The very next slide was talking about why invest in credit with that sponsor. And that was kind of seen as a reward slide. So they identified all their slides in the deck that they thought had a reward on it. And then actually what they did on each of those slides is then include a very general, kind of very generic um, sort of risks disclosure. So they added as a final bullet, and it can't be done as a footnote, important point in the ESMA guidelines, you can't do these risks disclosures as a footnote, it has to be the same size of the text, prominent on the slide. But they added as a final bullet, um, very simple disclosure saying, you know, look, um, investments can go down as well as up. No guarantee that we can kind of follow the same investment strategy and, you know, no guarantee we'll get access to the kind of same investments that we have done previously. And they've repeated that kind of disclosure on every single slide they're identified as having a reward. And I thought that was quite a, you know, nuanced and neat way of approaching it. Um, but that is the sort of thinking, Megan, that we've got going on at the moment when it comes to these sort of decks and it is a little bit of a sort of cultural shift i think you know for a lot of people when they're when they're thinking about how to draft decks and it goes to david's point about when we're coming at this from a exam question of hitting a single kind of global deck there's quite a bit of subtle rewriting i think to kind of get there from a european compliance perspective now yeah that makes perfect sense very interesting let's turn back to the sec space so david what are you seeing with respect to sponsors preparing for the substantiation requirements? So, i.e., for material statements of facts, advisors need to have a reasonable basis for believing they can substantiate those statements upon demand by the SEC. That's a good question, Megan, and it, and it relates closely to uh, some of the things that Owen was talking about. If you say that you as a sponsor have access to unique investment opportunities, from a NESBA perspective, it seems like that's problematic. From an SEC perspective, if you're going to say something like that, you have to have documentation to prove it up. And that documentation needs to be on hand, not something that you could Google and, and you think you could find in the context of an exam. So the SEC's requirement is for statements of fact, you have to have 
uh, the ability to substantiate those statements, which means you really need a record on hand. And you know what effectively that means is, and, and this really falls on the investor relations team to do, you really kind of need some, I think there are a lot of ways to do it, but an annotated or some folder or file that contains the backup documentation for statements in a deck that are statements of fact. Now, one question is like, well, what is the statement of fact? Can we just say, we believe we are unique or we believe we're the best uh, uh, fund sponsor? And, you know, the rule does say statements of fact must be substantiated. I would anticipate that examiners will look at those uh, opinion statements and want to see something that supports the opinion. Because if you don't have something that helps you express an opinion to back it up, it could be, you know, according to an examiner, an assertion that it's not fair and balanced or not accurate. So I would expect um, the lines to blur probably in the course of an exam on what's a statement of fact versus some of these statements of belief or opinion and just anticipate that and, and not probably not use the opinion interpretation too terribly aggressively. Yeah, I suspect that might be an issue with forthcoming sweeps in this area, but we'll see. Anything else, David? Any parting thoughts about the new marketing rule here? Obviously, we didn't touch on everything. There are some requirements about updating the form ADV, things like of that nature. But any other final thoughts here from your side? Yeah, thank you, Megan. Two thoughts. Um, one, we haven't really touched on placement agent agreements. The rule does basically push out compliance with the new marketing rule uh, from advisors onto placement agents. So the placement agents, the investment advisor is required under the rule to have a reasonable belief that the placement agents the advisor's using will comply with the rule and provide um, certain disclosure. And, you know, that's very complicated and difficult. I would say in terms of getting ready for the rule, we see many sponsors who've engaged their placement agents. There's a lot of education that needs to happen with the placement agents to just explain conceptually what does this mean and a lot of different practices evolving in that space, both in terms of what we expect placement agents actually to do and the potential for changes to the placement agent agreement. Some sponsors feel that terms in existing placement agent agreements cover the requirement for this kind of compliance with law uh, issue. Others uh, feel the need to add some language, especially if you're getting into a new fund launch and you're entering into new placement agent agreements. And that's just on the U.S. side. Like, if you can put yourself in the shoes of a, a you know a Japanese placement agent and a U.S. sponsor is asking them to comply with an SEC uh, Investment Advisors Act marketing rule, you know that's a very challenging conversation to have, and not not clear that that's even needed in in a lot of circumstances. And so that that's one big issue as a takeaway that we haven't really dove into yet uh, that many fund sponsors are focusing on. And if they haven't already, they really need to spend some time between now and November 4th focusing on that issue. The other is exactly what you said, Megan. Our expectation is that the SEC staff will uh, conduct an examination sweep shortly after the compliance date of the new rule. That's November 4th. Now, historically, the SEC's approach is to seek to promote compliance and awareness through these exam sweeps after a new rule to observe what market participants are doing to accommodate to the new rule. But if I'm a, in the compliance or legal team at a, uh, at a fund sponsor or any registered investment advisor, 
I do want to be ready and anticipate that that exam could come short on the heels of, of the of the compliance date and be ready to go and have have um, have materials that have the net versus you know next to gross. And if we're taking some of these interpretive issues that we've talked about throughout this uh, recording, for example, not showing net next to uh, individual portfolio investments, you know, think about ways to mitigate risk that an examiner could say, could misread the rule. Uh, one of those ways is to put the fund's performance in a footnote. Um, uh, so you've got the overall fund performance from which the investments were extracted in a footnote, and that you know it's hard to argue that that's not a fair presentation of the performance of that advisor as it relates to those investments. So those are the two big takeaways. Get ready for an exam, and if you're not already, focus now on how you're thinking about placement agents and others who may be endorsing you as an investment advisor. Very good. Owen, how about you? Any parting thoughts from the European perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some obvious areas of kind of overlap between the two regimes. So as David was touching upon, I think when it comes to over-optimistic language and that need to substantiate statements of fact, that's a clear area where the kind of two regimes are, you know, complementary in a way. I, I do think for the most part, the SEC rule feels maybe more principles based or almost like you know European guidance used to be when I look at the ESMA rules I, I certainly feel it's much more prescriptive than anything we've seen in Europe in a sort of very long time so again the over optimistic language you know they are giving clear examples of words that just aren't acceptable anymore this kind of risks and rewards stuff that I mentioned there's also other quite basic points but actually having to label things marketing material there's kind of prescribed disclaimers um, from an FX and a kind of tax perspective there's just a lot more prescription in the ESMA guidelines than we're sort of probably used to and I think historically that has been the other way around we were often much more principles based in Europe and this certainly feels like a big step change from that I'd probably finish by saying that you know there's a real sense in the EU that regulators are starting to take these sort of topics much more seriously, particularly in the kind of institutional LP space. That is just not something we have seen before in the EU. And when you look at, I guess what you might call the kind of quality of disclosure in marketing materials, whether it's under these ESMA marketing guidelines or it's you know, stepping back into acronyms, but if it's more like the ESG space and under a lot of the kind of EU ESG disclosure legislation, there is a real sense that EU regulators are now going to be kind of looking at the market and the quality of disclosure and, and may well take enforcement action, which again is just really unusual from a European perspective. Um, but I'll probably finish making by saying, or kind of repeating the point that David and I touched upon, which is, it doesn't quite feel that there's an explicit conflict between the rules. But I think where the challenge is going to be is kind of divergence in market practice, you know, divergence in how the kind of similar requirements are interpreted. And I think that starts to become a headache when you're kind of producing these the sort of global marketing, you know, decks or a global PPM. I think that's over, you know, over the next year, two years, that's going to be really interesting. Very good. So, Owen, David, thank you so much for your great insights today. I know you both are steeped in these topics. And to our listeners, thanks for listening in. 
Until next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Regulatory Roundtable. To hear about future episodes, be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app. To learn more about today's discussion or to reach out with questions or topics you would like to hear about on a future podcast, please contact us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com or visit our website at regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Simpson Thatcher and ACA Group for general informational purposes only. Listeners should not consider the information available via this podcast to be an invitation for an attorney-client relationship, should not rely on the information provided during the podcast as legal advice for any purpose, and should always seek the legal advice of competent counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Listeners should not act or refrain from acting based on any information made available via this podcast, and Simpson Thatcher and ACA expressly disclaim all liability in respect of actions taken or not taken based on any contents of this podcast. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that Simpson Thatcher and ACA make no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of Simpson Thatcher or ACA Group.